Chapter 3 of Recruit for Andromeda by Stephen Marlowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Hey, look at me, I'm flying! Will you get your big fat feet out of my face? Sure, show me how to swim away through the air, I'll be glad to. Let go that spoon! I ain't got your spoon. Will you look at it float away? Hey, spoon, hey! Watch this, Charlie. This will get you. I mean, get you. What are you gonna do? Relax, chum. Let go my leg! Help! I'm up in the air! Stop that! I said relax! There! <laughs> Look at him spin! Just like a top. All you gotta do is get him started and he spins like a top with arms and legs. Top of the morning to you, Charlie! <laughs> I said top of the- Someone stop me! I'm getting dizzy! They floated, tumbled, spun around the spaceship's lounge room in simple, childish glee. They cavorted in festive weightlessness. They're happy now, Arcalion observed. The novelty of freefall, of weighing exactly nothing, strikes them as amusing. I think I'm getting the hang of it, said Temple. Clumsily, he made a few tentative swimming motions in the air, propelling himself forward a few yards before he lost his balance and tumbled head over heels against the wall. Arcalion came to him quickly, in a combination of swimming and pushing with his hands and feet against the wall. Arcalion righted him expertly, sat down gingerly beside him. If you keep sudden motions to a minimum, you'll get along fine. More than anything else, that's the secret of it. Temple nodded. It's sort of like the first time you're on ice skates. Say, how come you're so good at it? I used to read the old theoretical books on space travel. The words poured out effortlessly, smoothly. I'm merely applying the theories put forward as early as the 1950s. Oh. But it left Temple with some food for thought. Alaric Arcalion was a queer duck, anyway, and of all the men gathered in the spaceship's lounge, he alone had mastered weightlessness with hardly any trouble. Take your ice skates, Arcalion went on. Some people put them on and use them like natural extensions of their feet for the first time. Others fall all over themselves. I suppose I am lucky. Sure, said Temple. Actually, the only thing odd about Arcalion was his old young face, and, perhaps, his propensity for coming up with the right answers at the right times. Arcalion had seemed so certain of space travel. He'd hardly batted an eyelash when they boarded a long, tapering, bullet-shaped ship at White Sands and thundered off into the sky. He took for granted the changeover to a huge round ship at the wheel-shaped station in space. Moments after leaving the space station, with a minimum of stress and strain, thanks to the almost nil gravity, it was Arcalion who first swam through the air to the viewport and pointed out the huge crescent Earth, green and gray and brown, sparkling with patches of dazzling silver-white. You will observe it as a crescent, Arcalion had said. It is closer to the sun than we are, and off at an angle. As I suspected... Our destination is Mars. Then everyone was saying goodbye to Earth. Fantastic, it seemed. There were tears, there was laughter, cursing, promises of return, awkward verbal comparisons with the crescent moon, vows of faithfulness to lovers and sweethearts. And there was Arcalion. With an avid expression in the old eyes, Arcalion with his boyish face, not saying goodbye so much as he was calling hello to something Temple could not fathom. Now, as he struggled awkwardly with weightlessness, Temple called it his imagination. His thought patterns shifted vaguely, without motivation, from the gleaming, polished interior of the ship 
with its smell of antiseptic and metal polish to the clear spring air of earth, blue of sky and bright of sun. The unique blue sky of earth which he somehow knew could not be duplicated elsewhere. Elsewhere. The word itself bordered on the meaningless. And Stephanie. The brief warm ecstasy of her. Once. Forever. He wondered with surprising objectivity if a hundred other names, a hundred other women, were not in a hundred other minds while everyone stared at the crescent earth hanging serenely in space. With each name and each woman as dear as Stephanie, with the same combination of fire and gentle femininity stirring the blood but saddening the heart. Would Stephanie really forget him? Did he want her to? That part of him burned by the fire of her said no. No, she must not forget him. She was his. His alone, roped and branded, though a universe separated them. But someplace in his heart was the thought, the understanding, the realization that although Stephanie might keep a small place for him tucked someplace deep in her emotions, she must forget. He was gone, permanently. For Stephanie, he was dead. It was as he told her that last stolen day. It was, Stephanie, Stephanie, how much I love you. Struggling with weightlessness, he made his way back to the small room he shared with Arcalion. Hardly more than a cubicle it was, with sufficient room for two beds, a sink, a small chest. He lay down and slept, murmuring Stephanie's name in his sleep. He awoke to the faint hum of the air pumps, got up feeling rested, forgot his weightlessness, and floated to the ceiling where only an outthrust arm prevented a nasty bump on his head. He used hand grips on the wall to let himself down. He washed, aware of no way to prevent the water he splashed on his face from forming fine droplets and spraying the entire room. When he crossed back to the foot of his bed to get his towel, he thrust one foot out too rapidly, lost his balance, half rose, stumbled, and fell against the other bed, which, like all other items of furniture, was fastened to the floor. But his elbow struck sleeping Arcalian's jaw sharply, hard enough to jar the man's teeth. I'm sorry, said Temple. Didn't mean to do that. He apologized again, feeling embarrassed. Arcalian merely lay there. I said I'm sorry. Arcalian still slept. It seemed inconceivable, for Temple's elbow pained him considerably. He bent down, examined his inert companion. Arcalian stirred not a muscle. Vaguely alarmed, Temple thrust a hand to Arcalian's chest, felt nothing. He crouched, rested the side of his head over Arcalian's heart. He listened, heard nothing. What was going on here? Hey, Arcalian! Temple shook him, gently at first then with savage force. Weightless, Arcalion's body floated up off the bed, taking the covers with it. His own heart pounding furiously, Temple got it down again, fingered the left wrist, and swallowed nervously. Temple had never seen a dead man before. Arcalion's heart did not beat. Arcalion had no pulse. Arcalion was dead. Yelling hoarsely, Temple plunged from the room, soaring off the floor in his haste and striking his head against the ceiling hard enough to make him see stars. The sky is dead, he cried. Arcalion is dead! Men stirred in the companionway. Someone called for one of the armed guards who were constantly on patrol. If he's dead, you're yelling loud enough to get him out of his grave. The voice was quiet, amused. Arcalion. What? Temple blurted, whirling around and striking his head again. A little wild-eyed, he re-entered the room. Now, who is dead, Kit? demanded Arcalion, sitting up and stretching comfortably. Who is dead? 
Who? Open-mouthed, Temple stared. A guard, completely at home with weightlessness, entered the cubicle bristly. What's the trouble here? Something about a dead man, they said? A dead man? demanded Arcalion. Indeed. Dead, muttered Temple, lamely and foolishly. Dead. Arcalion smiled depreciatingly. My friend must have been talking in his sleep. The only thing dead in here is my appetite. Weightlessness doesn't let you become very hungry. You'll grow used to it, the guard promised. He patted his paunch happily. I am. Well, don't raise the alarm unless there's some trouble. Remember about the boy who cried wolf. Of course, said Temple. Sure. Sorry. He watched the guard depart. Bad dream? Arcalion wanted to know. Bad dream, my foot. I accidentally hit you. Hard enough to hurt. You didn't move. I am a sound sleeper. I felt for your heart. It wasn't beating. It wasn't. Oh, come, come. Your heart was not beating, I said. And I suppose I was as cold as a slab of ice. Um, no. I don't remember. Maybe you were. You had no pulse, either. Arcalion laughed easily. <laughs> and am I still dead? Well, clearly a case of overwrought nerves and a highly keyed imagination. What you need is some more sleep. I'm not sleepy, thanks. Well, I think I'll get up and go down for breakfast. Arcalion climbed out of bed gingerly, made his way to the sink, and was soon gargling with a bottle of prepared mouthwash, occasionally spraying weightless droplets of the pink liquid up at the ceiling. Temple lit a cigarette with shaking fingers made his way to Arcalion's bed while the man hummed tunelessly at the sink. Temple let his hands fall on the sheet. It was not cold, but comfortably cool, hardly as warm as it should have been with a man sleeping on it all night. Was he still imagining things? I'm glad you didn't call for a burial detail and have me expelled into space with yesterday's garbage. Arcalion called over his shoulder jauntily as he went outside for some breakfast. Temple cursed softly and lit another cigarette dropping the first one into a disposal chute on the wall. Every night thereafter, Temple made it a point to remain awake after Arcalion apparently had fallen asleep, but if he were seeking repetition of the peculiar occurrence, he was disappointed. Not only did Arcalion sleep soundly and through the night, but he snored, loudly and clearly, a wheezing snore. Arcalion's strange feet, or his own overwrought imagination, Temple thought wryly, was good for one thing, it took his mind off Stephanie. The days wore on in endless, monotonous routine. He took some books from the ship's library and browsed through them, even managing to find one concerned with traumatic catalepsy, which stated that a severe emotional shock might render one into a deep enough trance to have a layman mistakenly pronounce him dead. But what had been the severe emotional disturbance for Arcalion? Could the effects of weightlessness manifest themselves in that way in rare instances? Temple naturally did not know, but he resolved to find out if he could after reaching their destination. One day, it was three weeks after they had left the space station, Temple realized, they were all called to assembly in the ship's large main lounge. As the men drifted in, Temple was amazed to see the progress they had made with weightlessness. He himself had advanced to handy facility in locomotion, but it struck him all the more pointedly when he saw 200 men swim and float through the air, pushing themselves along by means of the handholds strategically placed along the walls. 
The ever-present microphone greeted them all. Good afternoon, men. Good afternoon, Mac. Hey, is this the way to Ebbets Field? Get on with it! Sounds like the same man who addressed us in White Sands, Temple told Arcalion. He sure does get around. A recording, probably. Listen. Our destination, as you've probably read in newspapers and magazines, is the planet Mars. Mutterings in the assembly, not many of surprise. Their suppositions, based both on the 780-day lapse between nowhere journeys and the romantic position in which the planet Mars has always been held, are correct. We are going to Mars. For most of you, Mars will be a permanent home for many years to come. Most of us? Temple wondered out loud. Arcalion raised a finger to his lips for silence. Until such a time as you are rotated according to the policy of rotation set up by the government. Temple had grown accustomed to the familiar hoots and catcalls. He almost had an urge to join in himself. Interesting, Arcalion pointed out. Back at White Sands, they claimed not to know our destination. They knew it all right, up to a point. The planet Mars. But now they say that all of us will not remain on Mars. Most interesting. Further indoctrination in our mission soon after our arrival on the Red Planet. Landing will be performed under somewhat less strain than the initial takeoff in the Earth-to-Station Ferry, since Mars exerts less of a gravity pull than Earth. On the other hand, you have been weightless for three weeks, and the changeover is liable to make some of you sick. It will pass harmlessly enough. We realize it is difficult being taken from your homes without knowing the nature of your urgent mission. All I can tell you now, and as a matter of fact, all I know... Here we go again, said Temple more riddles, is that everything is of the utmost urgency. Our entire way of life is at stake. Our job will be to safeguard it. In the months which follow, few of you will have any big, significant role to play. But all of you, working together, will provide the strength we need. When the cadre... So they call their guards teachers, Arcalion commented dryly. Come around. They will see that each man is strapped properly into his bunk for deceleration. Deceleration begins in 27 minutes. Mars, thought Temple back in his room with Arcalion. Mars. He did not think of Stephanie, except as a man who knows he must spend the rest of his life in prison might think of a lush green field, or the cool swish of skis over fresh powdery snow, or the sound of yard arms creaking against the wind on a small sailing schooner, or the tang of wieners roasting over an open fire with the crisp air of fall against your back or the scent of good French brandy, or a woman. Deceleration began promptly, before his face was distorted and his eyes forced shut by a pressure of four gravities. Temple had time to see the look of complete unconcern on Arcalion's face. Arcalion, in fact, was sleeping. He seemed as completely relaxed as he did that morning Temple thought he was dead. End of chapter 3